Increasingly, science and technology are occupying a much more significant role within companies and for consumers. But leaders in STEM organizations are finding a lack of gender diversity, difficulties in retaining female talent, and in agility of leadership. Researchers from Zanger Folkman and Arcadia compared 360 feedback from over 16,000 STEM leaders, revealing insights based on hard data, facts, and statistical analysis. In our podcast today, we are taking a hard look at STEM leaders and the problems and opportunities that need to be acted upon. Welcome to the 90th Percentile, an unconventional leadership podcast. Each week, using research from over 1.5 million global assessments of leaders, we analyze different leadership traits, trends, and what it really takes for leaders to get to the 90th Percentile. I'm Brianna Corrin, and joining me today for this conversation are my colleagues and leadership experts, Joe Folkwin and Jack Sanger, and from Arcadia Consulting, Andy Patterson. Since you're new to our podcast, Andy, could you give a quick introduction and tell our listeners about yourself? Okay. Uh, Yeah, I'm uh, head of research for Arcadia Consulting, who uh, work on leadership and mindset and are partners of Zenga Folkman. I've been doing that for 12 years. I confess in my early career for seven years, I was a research scientist. So I am a STEM person uh, by, by training and in between. Uh, I also worked for IBM for about 25 years, uh, sometimes in a technical role, sometimes in a consulting role. So I've kind of straddled both sides of this STEM kind of uh, membrane, if you like. Yeah, well, you're perfect for this conversation we're going to have. Um, now, you said in this paper that has recently come out that you've had a lot of different clients in STEM fields, and you were noticing some common leadership issues among them. So you went to Jack and Joe um, to look at the global STEM data that they had in their database, and you combined this with the 2021 Women in the Workplace study that was published by McKinsey and Lean In. This research is very comprehensive, and it really provided some shocking and striking insights that we're excited to dive into today. So Andy, start us out. According to this data, are leaders in STEM as effective as non-STEM leaders? And what are some of the surprising things that came out to you since you have so much experience in this field? The striking thing that comes out immediately from looking at the data is that there are lots of competencies that I I use the term missing in STEM leaders. And by that, I mean that it's much, much harder to get to the 90th percentile for them. So if if you like to use the analogy, let's suppose that um, being tall was a leadership trait, which I I suspect it once was back in back in prehistory. Women are seven percent shorter than men, uh, five foot five uh, against five foot nine. If I looked at men and said that the criteria for great leadership was being six foot tall, then I would find uh, at the eighty fifth percentile that that was six foot for men. So fifteen men in every hundred would be over six foot. But if I looked at women, uh, since their median is is at uh, five foot five, it's one in a hundred. So when I say missing, it's the the statistical distribution of really high scoring people is kind of missing in a lot of competencies. 
And, and these are not unimportant competencies. They're, they're things like customer and external focus, champions change, to develop strategic perspective, inspires and motivates, innovates, communicates powerfully and prolifically, establishes stretch goals, develops others, collaboration and teamwork. They're all in, in that category. STEM leaders definitely have a narrower, much narrower profile of leadership styles than uh, you would find in a non-STEM world. And of course, the other thing which wasn't surprising to any of us was that technical and professional expertise would be rated the most important. And it isn't normally for normal populations. It's about halfway up the list of 19 competencies. Well, uh, Andy, you really did all the heavy lifting on this. You had the enthusiasm. I mean, it was your idea to begin with to, to study this because of your experience in this field. What did, did you just sort of going into this have some observations or what led you to kind of want to study this in more detail? As I said, it, it was triggered by a couple of requests. Three requests came in within three months from clients. Uh, to look at their, uh, their technical departments, particularly IT departments and engineering departments, uh, from the point of view of, A, encouraging more women to remain in those professions because they were having attrition problems, and B, just straightforward leadership, poor leadership kind of issues. So, you know, that triggered something in my brain, and I I kind of went back in time to the um, my first day as a research scientist in a government, a top secret government lab, and um, I observed all kinds of strange behaviour amongst theoretical physicists, and you know, we really difficulty in communication, and I got used to it. You know, you do in your workplace, you get used to it. It seems uh, pretty normal after a while, after seven years. I thought I was great because I thought I was a good communicator relative to other people. And I decided to stride out into the big wide world and get a job with IBM um, as a consultant. Um, and, uh, the, and then I had a nasty shock, which is that everybody was a better communicator than I was, absolutely everybody. And so I'd been living in a kind of a bubble for, for seven years. And it kind of reminded me of that time. And so I wanted to, to see if that was still true and, um, and what might be un underpinning it. So, Andy, what are, the, what are the practical consequences in terms of what organizations who are either primarily in the STEM disciplines or whose functions are, are they have functions in the STEM disciplines, what do those organizations need to do differently? There's kind of a process that goes on in, in promoting people in STEM, which is essentially, of course, focused on technical and professional expertise. So there's an evaluation um, of the best technical and professional people. Um, they go to interview. At some point through, there may be some minor considerations of um, how well-rounded they are, how well they communicate, but it's very much a secondary issue. And... In my opinion, one of the things that they need to do is to revise their whole process because they need to start paying serious attention to 
those leadership competencies that they need as a business. So this is a business issue. If their technical department isn't changing, it isn't adjusting, it isn't providing business differential to the, to the company, then sure, you know, maybe you can treat it like uh, that agility doesn't matter and, and that kind of thing. But that's not really true these days of almost any industries. Uh, the, the amount of change that's being brought in the digital revolution is so profound uh, that they need to start paying attention as a business to the effectiveness of their technical leadership. What was the biggest surprise, Andy, when you compared men and women in STEM? Uh, what surprised you about the results there? Well, one of the most surprising things was the the fact that, as as I think you found when you looked at men versus women as leaders, that their profiles are very very different. So, so I did the correlation for non-STEM between men and women. And it was negative, as I kind of expected, uh, about minus 0.43 or something, uh, which means that men are good at some things, women are good at the other things, and pretty much any of your 19 competencies can be found as long as you have a diverse range of people. But when we looked at STEM, there was a positive 0.54 correlation, which means that that's a huge swing. It means that men and women are very much alike. They're bad at the same things. They're good at the same things. Um, so, uh, and I didn't expect to see that. I thought that societal differences between men and women would be greater than the, the training of the brain that I talked about. Uh, but it turns out not to be the case. The data is very, very clear. Um, men and women scientists have adjusted their brain structure, their systems of thought to the extent that it's a bigger difference than men and women in, in society. Were, were men better leaders than women? Uh, no, women were still better, um, very much like the non-STEM population. Um, women were substantially better than men at several things. So in general, uh, across the board, women were stronger. So why, when they get into the workplace, is it perceived that women aren't as technically good as men? And, um, and that was when we uh, took a look at the uh, Lean In and McKinsey study, which interviewed 70,000 people, and uh, particularly the work that they did around workplace behaviours. And that was very insightful. Well, what I, I think was is fascinating, the cultures of these STEM organisations seem to put just this huge value on technical expertise. And then when they essentially put someone into a leadership role, that technical expertise may not service them as well as some other leadership behaviors would, right? And so maybe, do you think there needs to be a cultural change to kind of also put value on some other important leadership behaviors? Yeah, I think there's a couple of cultural differences that need to be made. What what the McKinsey study showed was that behavior in the form of what we call microaggressions was specifically targeted at technical expertise. So women suffered more microaggressions than men. What further happened was when women were in a minority, we called them women onlys, so the only woman in the team or something like that, 
that these microaggressions on technical expertise almost doubled. And uh, another strange thing was that they, they measured uh, microaggressions for senior women in senior roles, and they almost doubled. So, so men stayed exactly the same, whether they were senior or junior, and women went up as they became more senior. So, so it seems to me that the cultural workplace environment that a woman finds herself in, in a STEM type role, is you know, going to lead to kind of a, a triple hit. I mean, first of all, you're a woman, so you get more microaggressions. You know, secondly, you might get to be senior, you know, so you get more microaggressions. And then you're in the minority, so you get even more microaggressions. <laughs> so, so it's kind of a, tr we call it a triple whammy. I'm not sure if that translates <laughs> translates all that well. It worked well. <laughs> so, uh, so that was, that was a, real, a real insight. And, uh, and that's why one of the cultural changes that we need is for leaders to, to kind of step in and stop that. You know, they just need to challenge those little statements. And it's very, very hard for a woman to do. We can try to teach women how to defend and deflect these little microaggressions, which, by the way, are not really conscious. They're kind of, uh, you know, at best semi-conscious, uh, not deliberate and not malicious usually. Um, but they to deflect them is really quite difficult to do without the woman appearing to be kind of feisty or sensitive or, you know, uh, anything like that. So they typically don't. They typically just let it wash over them and it leads to a chronic kind of dissatisfaction, a kind of a quiet quitting environment, if you want to use that term. But they, mm -hmm. they, they kind of just don't have enough energy to keep on challenging it. So they kind of let it go, um, which is why I think uh, there is attrition in these environments. And so the cultural change needs to be leaders need to step in, stop it happening straight off the bat, you know, and they need to be taught to do that. Um, we can teach women to be better at deflecting and we can teach men uh, not to do it, to be much more aware of what they're doing and, um, and get them into a more emotionally intelligent place which I think would, uh, all of which would go a long way to address this problem. What, what are some of the recommendations uh, for the skills that you see were most needed in this group as, as we think about the STEM function and what popped out for you as kind of the skills to get them to move forward and really step up in terms of their effectiveness? I think there are, two, there are a couple of things that are really necessary. First of all, I think, it's necessary for everybody in these environments to understand what happens, you know, and to really understand it. So, um, and, and this is a bit like other areas of um, diversity and equality and inclusion that we've looked at, you know, so w being an only woman is, is in some ways quite similar to being the only um, uh, black African in a team or something. Or, or, or something like that. So it's very similar to those other environments where people are just aren't aware of the little things. They're just not aware of the environment in which they operate. And whilst they're ignoring that and actually not feeling it, somebody else is feeling it. And really to make them more fully aware 
of all of that because you can't really do much about equality and diversity unless you can really feel it you know because because in a sense if you don't feel it it's invisible to you I mean, you may be able to intellectually articulate that it's happening but if you don't feel it it's not the same you know we've got to a point where some of these things are quite subtle they're quite and as i said they're not malicious they're not cognitive um, they're just behavioral they're ingrained in everyday behavior uh in in uh some studies we've done we love this uh article in hbr uh kelly and kaplan where they uh, worked for at bell labs and identified what they called the star scientists those that were most productive most effective had the most successful experiments and at first they thought well they they're probably more intelligent, but it turned out when they look at the intelligence tests, everybody at Bell Labs was intelligent, right? But what differentiated these great, these scientists that were better, were, were they had better interpersonal skills, uh, the, you know, their ability to communicate and relate to others and talk. Uh, was that a similar finding in, in your research? I think, yes, I mean, I, I think very much so. And it's certainly in my life experience as well. I mean, um, it's, it's, it's absolutely clear that in order to, the most discoveries, most innovations are effectively team things. So they, they arise because of collaboration between two great scientists, three great scientists, who, each of whom has looked at the problem. This was true of Darwin. It was true of Einstein. Einstein is pictured in 1927 with a group in, uh, I think it's um, somewhere in Germany. Um, and this group's 27 people. Right? Now, in the next 20 years, 17 of those people would go on to win a Nobel Prize. Mm. And it's because the people like Pauli and Heisenberg and, and Einstein rubbed, rubbed their ideas off each other and were able to communicate them and, and they weren't isolated. So it was a real testimony to, um, to the power of collaboration amongst STEM workers. And, and I think that's even more important today than it, than it was then. They were breaking a completely new frontier by the way, unfortunately, only one of them was a, was a woman, but she, she ended up with two Nobel Prizes and the only, was the only person uh, to win uh, a Nobel Prize twice amongst that group. So that was Marie Curie. Thank you, Andy, for coming on to our show today and sharing all these incredible insights. I love that at the end of your paper, which we will be sure to link in our episode notes so you can read all of the research that was done by Zinger Folkman and Arcadia, you said that that you feel confident that this leadership in STEM issue can be turned around to the benefit of business performance overall, and that there's hope for the future and things that can be done and um, in this specific field. So thanks for sharing these insights. Well, thanks very much. And thanks for the ability to use your data, guys. It was, it was fantastic. The 90th Percentile and Unconventional Leadership Podcast was written and recorded by Brianna Corin, Jack Zanger, and Joe Folkman, and produced by Zanger Folkman. 
If you are interested in learning more about Zanger Folkman's award-winning 360-degree assessments, leadership, and coaching offerings, or would like to attend our monthly leadership webinar series hosted by Jack and Joe, visit our website at zangerfolkman.com. If you like our podcast, tell your friends and coworkers about it, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and leave us a great review. We really like to read them. All resources and links to the research referenced in this episode can be found in our episode details or on our podcast page on zangerfolkman.com.